leadership in cybersecurity isn't just about understanding threats. It's about leading a team to navigate them with confidence. At CPF Coaching LLC, we specialize in taking your leadership skills to the next level. With over 15 years in the cybersecurity field, we empower professionals and startups to reach unprecedented heights. Imagine having a personalized coaching experience tailored to your unique career ambitions. From strategic planning to masterful pitch and interview preparations, we're here to guide you through every challenge. Join us for our unique value proposition workshops or dive into our vibrant learning community for continuous skill advancement. Don't just be a part of the industry. Redefine it. Visit cpfcoaching.com for more information. Discover the leader within. Contact CPF Coaching LLC today and schedule your strategic session. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Into Cybersecurity. Today, it's just myself and Cyber Mike. Um, I know there's a cool story behind that, but um, let's let you know all the places that you can find us. You can find us right here live on LinkedIn every Thursday at 1 p.m. For those of you also checking in on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button, hit that notification button right down below. That way, next time... You will see us pop up on your screen. We are going live to Twitch stream for the first time this week, just adding more and more capabilities and live on Twitter. So follow us where you can. So today we have Mike Anderson from the Dallas area, and he is our honorary CISO. So Mike, let's maybe take a step back. What got you interested into tech and cyber? So first off, Chris, thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Uh, I am an avid viewer. I watch every single week. Really love the work that you and the team are doing. And uh, again, I'm incredibly um, excited to be here to share some tidbits and nuggets with the audience. So um, (laughs) it's a really interesting story. So in the summertime, I, I didn't grow up here in Texas. I'm a transplant. I grew up in California. And my grandmother lived in San Bernardino. We lived in Los Angeles. And in the summertime, um, we would go out to grandmother's house and we would stay a few weeks with her. And what I found is my friends in San Bernardino, I'm going to date myself when I say this, but they used to have, you know, Atari and ColecoVision and they would get to play, you know, games and just really enjoy themselves. But my grandmother was different, right? She was like, yeah, I bet that stuff is fun. And there was a time for that. But here's this Commodore 64. I want to see you make it do something different every every day. And if it looks different each day, then you can go hang out with them and play games. So, uh, you know, if you've ever if you've ever seen a Commodore 64, <laughs> 
you got to make it do whatever you want it to do. And, and it's all that basic language. And so that was effectively my intro into computers. And uh, ironically, when I went to the armed services after graduating high school, I didn't select a computer profession. I selected something totally different. But I wanted to answer your question. I don't want to ramble too much on because I know you've got some things that you want to pull out of me today. No rambling, no rambling. Um, we like to, to find out the origins because one of the interesting things about cyber is that people come from everywhere. People have all sorts of experiences, and that's something that we like to highlight. So you you went into the armed forces, and thank you for your service, but... How did you end up back in tech and cyber? Like, what was that journey like? All right. So here's the rest of the story. So I entered the armed services as an electronics repairman, right? And what happened was there there were too many people in that particular job. And when there's too many people in an, I was in the army. So I only know this to be true for Army. If there's back then, if there were too many people in a particular profession, they would give you the opportunity to move to a different profession. So I I I took a look at the list, and the one of the things that really jumped out at me was military intelligence. And you really got to do some really super duper cool stuff, get access to a whole bunch of data and, and, and things that most army folks weren't privy to. And so it was through the reassignment from electronics into the military intelligence field. It was there that they had all of these Unix-based systems. They had um, early editions of, of, of Windows 3 and Windows 3.1. And, and, and so that's where I sort of started to rehone those skills that I learned on my Commodore. Um, and upon exiting uh, 10 years later, um, at that point, I'd been, I'd seen everything. We had data centers. We had uh, tactical units that had uh, microwave technology that was founded on Cisco gear. Um, so I got to utilize all of that stuff, train up teams, do all sorts of uh, mentoring and coaching for younger professionals coming into military intelligence field. So as, as I was leaving, I was very well rounded and doing in the military the equivalent of what we would call a network manager mm-hmm. um, as in what we called back then the civilian sector or, you know, as we are today. <laughs> wow. I, I, I love that the Army provided you both with the experiences of that and the leadership experiences because yeah. I think one of the, the challenges of folks that are technically inclined is that they tend to go down the technical route and then the, 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 the people skills required for leadership then becomes harder for them to achieve. Uh, and, and I think like the military is a great place where, where you get that roundedness. Um, 
So, so coming out of the military, you, you you're running. What you what did you go into in the civilian sector? Did you so jump straight where, into security? No, no. Here's where it gets really, really interesting. So, I I I leave the military. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm equivalent. I'm doing work that's equivalent to a network manager. So that's what I'm going to apply for when when I exit. Well, there's not a one-to-one -one translation from the work that you do in the military to the work you would do, you know, in private sector. And so I had to start all over, Chris. I I pretty much re-entered at the ground level as a desktop support net technician. And I worked my way up from there to um, a land WAN administrator. And I worked my way up from there to a, a network admin or network uh, engineer. But I was really only doing network admin work. And then one of the gentlemen left and I got a senior job. And then I got a supervisor job. and Three years later, I was back to where I thought I would be um, as a manager in an information technology shop, really with a focus on infrastructure uh, and project management back then. Moved around a couple of times, and it seemed like the next three employers were all turnarounds. And that got me a greater degree of exposure as a manager. So. Not only was I working with infrastructure, the data center, um, but I got to work with application development folks, really got a great understanding of, you know, how they do their work and the things that they depend on on a day-to-day -day basis to be successful. Had an opportunity to work with a whole bunch of different audit firms, you know, for uh, anywhere from SSAE 16 to PCI to HIPAA. I got to layer in a lot of governance and regulatory stuff. And then 10, about 10 years ago, um, I made a hard cut from infrastructure right at the time when SD-WAN was getting really popular. It might be a little more than 10 years. Just right at that point, I'm like, you know what? It might be time for me to make a, a, a mid-career change. And, and kind of looking at all of the disciplines that I had collected, you know, over that, you know, 16, 17-year period, um, I saw that there was a tremendous need in the cybersecurity field, and it lacked some good leaders. Um, so I felt like I was incredibly well-rounded. And because of that, um, I would make a great cybersecurity practitioner. So about 11, 12 years ago now that I'm thinking about it a little clearer um, is when I made the cut and been here ever since. Nice, nice. So right now you're a CISO at, for a school district. And up to you if you want to say the name, but I absolutely love that you're you're helping develop the next generation because one of the, the things that I feel that we absolutely need to do is in order to solve the talent gap of today, tomorrow, and the future, we have to start awareness young so that those that are interested in tech and cyber can see role models today 
of who they want to become. So that starts with just general awareness and someone um, coming from a background like yourself going, oh, I came out of the army. I, I could become a CISO. Like I, I have those skills that that, that kind of shows that awareness for them. And then also kind of offering a, a minimum literacy of everyone to use computers because no matter what you're doing, almost everything in our society is, is run by one sort of electronic or another. Mm-hmm. And we really just need everyone to have a general competency. So say by the time you graduate high school, you have a, a digital competency of some sort of how to protect yourself online, how to use online services, things like that. Just like yes. you, you might need financial literacy. Um, yes. So, what are some of the the, the challenges for you in um, protecting a, a school district, and also working with 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 the staff to drive awareness for for security? Well, <clears throat> you know that's a that's a that's a loaded question, uh, <laughs> and I know you know that because you're a practitioner. <laughs> So I've only been in this role for eight weeks. So just under two months at the end of this week. And, um, you know, there's 22,000 employees, there's 252 schools. And, um, there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, and, you know, what is the second largest school district here in the state of Texas? So. You know, really what I'm, I'm after right now is a very good baseline. And, you know, wherever I go, um, I have a repeatable process and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a look at people, processes and tech, literally in that order. Um, and so I'm, I'm right on the cusp of finishing up that process. And that will provide for me a very good risk register um, that I can share with the executive team. Um, but more importantly, it's going to give me an 18 to 24 month roadmap that, you know, will take us from wherever we score right now to maturity for the designated framework that we have selected. So. I know I didn't answer all parts of the question, <laughs> and it's only because I'm kind of new here. Makes but, sense. Uh, Makes sense. You know, if you just think about trying to make 22,000 people uh, cyber secure aware, uh, <laughs> that's that's a tall order all by itself. If you think about trying to secure uh, ingress and egress for 252 schools. That's a pretty sizable challenge too. add to it that we have, you know, every type of computer you can imagine, various vendors, operating systems and versions. Um, certainly not a position for the faint at heart. Well, let, let's take a, maybe a step back in your career when you're when you were previously protecting a county. Um, yes. we, we often think that in the in the order of things from federal to state to local that almost the funding goes down the 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 lower you get how do you help protect the critical infrastructure 
down at that level. Yeah. Um, I think you hit on a very, very valid point. Um, and that's the budget process, budget processes, the spend that is allocated specifically to cyber. And I know you know this because I have also heard some of your other guests uh, make mention of it, but that is one of the um, largest hurdles apart from the talent that we'll talk through um, that, you know, us practitioners face. You know, I, I had a phenomenal mentor early on and he would always share with me, you know, hey, Mike, you have to be a, you have to be able to share a narrative that has a very, very intense storyline, but it should not include fear. Um, and through persuasion, through a very well-developed uh, storyline, your data should speak for you and it should help you secure either the human resources or the capital resources that you need, you know, to move your program from where it is to where they want it to be. And um, I kid you not, um, working at the county was an incredible challenge, but it, at the same time, it was a huge learning opportunity because what I was forced to do is um, make all of the, or fix all of the issues that were noted, close all of the gaps and create compensating controls with a very small budget. So I wasn't able to use best of breed, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I had to look to those that were emerging, those were up and coming. And um, if I can be very, very candid, I, I took a little bit of a, uh, a faith-based approach and I said, Although uh, AI and ML is kind of young still, and you know there's a huge gap between supervised and unsupervised, um, I'm going to go with an all AI-based security program to give us the best opportunity to at least stay on par with all the attacks that we were seeing. And so uh, between doing the diligence to prove out up and coming and um, um, providers and making use at every angle possible, um, at every platform possible to equip it with AI and ML and uh, user entity behavior analytics. We were able to put together a fantastic program that passed third party muster um, very easily. So the summary is, I think you have to think outside of the box. Um, you most certainly are taken out of your comfort zone. There's a lot of comfort <laughs> that comes with being able to use best of breed. Uh, but if you can't afford that, then again, you've got to make some uh, calculated decisions on those uh, vendors that are up and coming and just do your best to, you know, make good, clean decisions for your program. So for, for those that are interested in being a CISO at that level, when you think of critical infrastructure that you need to protect at that level, 
um, I, I don't think many think about like the water and the power and the electric and and then all of the IoT that comes along with providing everything that we're, we're, we're used to getting to, to live and protecting all that. What are some of the challenges there? Well, so I was fortunate, Chris, um, at the county, we had very, very little um, of that type of infrastructure, critical infrastructure. But a good friend of mine, Dr. Gardner, over at the city of Dallas, he and I caucused quite a bit and worked together on a number of projects. So I do know from his lens that um, he's got a whole nother team apart from you know the work that he does for the program proper he's got a whole nother group of folks dedicated to that um and to assessing and reassessing um all of that critical infrastructure uh with eyes on glass every single day um mm -hmm. to, to to keep those uh, assets protected and uh and to be able to respond to anything that is seen, you know, near real time. And it goes beyond just his team. I mean, he's got, you know, internal folks, obviously, but he's also got help from external partners so that they've got full 24 by seven support uh, looking at that specific um, asset class. So it's a lot of work. And for those folks who are fortunate enough or unfortunate enough, depending on how you, how you define it, to have those sort of assets under management, um, it's a big deal. It's a real big deal. And um, I think about the reputational damage when things go bad and how quickly um, the public is, uh, will weigh in. Because again, these should be commodity services. They are things that they depend on day to day to do life. And when they're disrupted, they're not filled by a small population, at least not here in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. That's a big, and, 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 and the city of Dallas covers a good swash of that. So um, the outcry is pretty intense. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, we have a question from one of our listeners. Leslie asks, how can sell making how can you sell making such a decision to leadership? My CISO is constantly trying to introduce new cyber strategies, but management is always pushing back. And I love the thing that you said earlier that your narrative shouldn't include fear. So how do you do that without including even a little bit of fear? Well, um I'm 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 just a wee bit different. Um in so much as I've had an awful lot of people invest in me and I've learned how to operate at this level effectively and efficiently. And I can name off a group of folks, but it wouldn't be fair because I'd miss somebody and then I get a phone call <laughs> after the show. So I won't do that. But to answer the question um, and, and, and what was the um, audience member's name? Leslie. Leslie, um, I am I am happy to work with you, um, you know, off podcasts and 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 the CISO to help with that. I think there's a lot of dynamics probably at play that I don't understand, but um, I just want to 
take another angle at what I shared earlier. Um, when I enter into an organization, the very first thing I do is I do a risk assessment. It's a baseline and it's always against a well-known cybersecurity framework. There's NIST has a whole bunch of them. Uh, then there's the CIS controls and a few others, but those are the big ones. I always do an assessment. And when I'm in that phase, what I'm really aiming to do is to outline all of the things that we're doing well and the things that we aren't doing so well. And then I take the things that we're not doing well and I share with them two pieces of information, an approximate value of what it's going to take to make that go away. And then I share with them the likelihood of this particular gap, exploit, whatever the case may be, um, happening. And in, in, in our world as practitioners, um, we can either deprecate the, the system and make the vulnerability go away. We can address it in the same way we're discussing now with a platform, with a tool, with a, a, a human resource. Or um, we can give that decision to the leadership team and, and they can make a, a decision based on our narrative and based on how we've framed it as to whether they want to accept that risk or not. And that, that for me is a very pivotal point when I enter an organization because based on what they push back on or the risk that they accept, that lets me know going forward for some of the other things that I'm going to need to do to create a holistic program. That helps me to understand where they really are with respect to supporting the development of the program. So again, I'm, I'm, I know there's more to this than what I've just shared, but I'm happy to work with you all uh, apart from this um, to help you get the outcomes that you desire. And thank you for fielding that question with us. Well, I, I love both the, the risk-based approach uh, as well as the maturity model that, that you look to implement. I, I often feel like some use a check-the-box approach rather than a... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, maturity model approach like CMMC or something similar. And th those are absolutely great approaches to take because it lets them know, okay, this is where we are, or this is where we might be with some of the systems, but not all of the systems. So that these are the things that we need to do to get to maybe where the rest of the industry is, the rest of our competitors are, or where we should be based on our risk appetite that the, the board or our regulators might have set. Um, Chris, it just, it just suddenly dawned on me, as you said that one of the things that I left out in my response to Ms. Leslie was that, or to Leslie is that oftentimes what I will also do, and it's kind of subconscious at this point, that's why I didn't uh, um, share it in my previous statement, is a lot of boards and a lot of executives, they, they wanna understand how do we rate against others that do the same sort of work that we do or 
are are similar in industry type. And I will often uh, get information to underscore where we are against some of our competitors or others in that particular vertical uh, discipline. And so, or industry is even better said. And so that's a part of my presentation as well. And I left that out and I think that's important too. Yeah, absolutely. And they say, thank you. So uh, as, as we continue with our journey and we're, 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 we're kind of stepping away from your career and we're looking at, at the future, how do we prepare the, the next generation both to be cybersecurity professionals and then later on, we could tackle uh, potentially cybersecurity leaders because it sounds like you're very passionate about that topic. Well, um, I am. And Chris, I think you know from other conversations that we've had uh, off camera that um, I, I mentor an awful lot of folks. And I do that um, for free. I don't expect anything in return uh, for the for the coaching and the counseling. Um, I just ask that they go forward, learn the information best they can, and when they've mastered it, share it with someone else. And I think this whole model is central to helping the next um, generation of leaders and practitioners um, come into this space and do good work. Um, it doesn't cost us much other than time to do that. Uh, I'm even going over to uh, the Collin County campus. I'm going to be teaching some courses over there to help ready uh, young professionals for cybersecurity careers. And so I, I think we have to give back. Um, um, I think that should be very, very central to uh, at least folks who, you know, have made it into leadership and understand what that individual contributor role looks like across the different disciplines that make up cyber or, or cybersecurity as a whole. Um, giving back is, is, I think, one of the big things that we should be doing, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Uh, you, you mentioned Colin County and having known some of the folks o over in Collin County, they do a lot within their their school district the, at the community college level, at the, mm -hmm. the university level, to really prepare their students to be great members of cybersecurity, of IT, with a lot of hands-on learning as part of the min minimum curriculum. Do, how can we replicate that model across the states? Because we know each county is different, each state is different, but what are some of the ways you think that we could do to replicate that model? Well, you know, um, for quite some time, <clears throat> we've had our certification processes. And, you know, as a hiring manager, if someone has a particular CompTIA, a particular SANS, a particular IC, ISC2, et cetera, certification, I have, I have come to understand and appreciate the rigor that that individual has gone through to secure that certification, right? It's, a, if you will, a standard or a base level of 
knowledge that they have demonstrated that they've mastered, right? And and, and I think the same thing should hold true at the collegiate level. Um, I've gone through um, two different programs um, and, you know, one was at the bachelor's level, another at the master's level. And they were radically different. They, they, they had very little in common. And I would have thought that they would have had some sort of building blocks, right? And the requirements for master was completely different than the requirements for bachelor. So to get to your question and to kind of get somewhere near middle, um, if we could have, you know, a body, an educational body standardized, here's what a cyber education should look like if you want to take you know, the engineering track, if you want to take the analyst track, if you want to take the app set track, if you want to take the compliance track and so forth and so on. If we had those as standards across all of our uh, educational institutions, man, that would that would really make a profound difference. But you know what, Chris, I wanted to also share with you is that um, what I see right now and it may be because of the great resignation, but I'm seeing a lot of HR departments reducing that collegiate standard and, and, and saying that, hey, if you have a certification and, and some time in a technical field, we will accept that. And I think that's going to be really, really huge to help people to gain access to these cybersecurity careers that are in tremendous abundance. So you mentioned the great resignation and potentially removing some of those limits or some some of that criteria. Do, do you think that criteria was a a false premise to begin with, almost like a, a screening out mechanism versus truly what a hiring manager or company was looking for? Um, I, I feel like, I want to be careful how I deal with this question. <laughs> I think there was a traditional model, right? The traditional model for technology professionals um, is, was, is, still <laughs> if, if, if you're going to have an entry level position, then it's probably unlikely that you're going to have to have a college degree, right? Maybe you've gone to some technical training, maybe you had a couple of boot camps, some certifications, um, and or you've worked in a technical trade for a while, you know, you've proven that you can do the work. But it seemed like once you got to a certain income level, now all of a sudden, you know, we have these sort of academic requirements that you have to hit first in conjunction with all of the other technical components that we would expect to see as well. And unfortunately, you know, as I look out at cyber for all of the things that make up the various disciplines, most of them don't really need a cyber security degree, a degree at all, to be candid. Um, 
case in point, I have um, team members who um, have come from other technical trades and they have moved into cybersecurity roles. I'm training them up on those roles and they're doing a tremendous work. Um, so I think there's a lot that just sort of moved the old style, that traditional model, once cyber became as big as it became, um, it just moved into those career fields naturally, right? Because they were considered technical fields, technical mm -hmm. jobs. And it's just now becoming evident to folks that there are a multitude of technical people who can do this work with just a little training and a little coaching. And again, you know, a bachelor's degree is just simply not required to be a fantastic analyst. It's, it's just not. Wow. Uh, Leslie makes another comment. The reverse should be true. Someone without many certs should be considered as a prime candidate as well. Leslie totally agree. And that, that kind of walks in with what, what um, Mike was saying was that if you have the, the the technical aptitude, if you have the background, if you have some training, you should be able to do that. With how you describe that, Mike, you're almost saying that cyber should be a vocation. Would you agree with that? I wouldn't disagree with it. I mean, for the, the different jobs that I have on my team, I have privacy, I have compliance, I have threat hunters, I've got SIM engineers, security engineers, and analysts. <clears throat> and I have an, an and I have one architect. I think maybe at the architect level, um, maybe there's a whole lot of additional training that should go with that particular role because of all of the different um, IT teams that they would have to be able to effectively communicate with. Um, but the others, I've, I've seen both models over the course of my career. I've been in IT over 25 years. I know that there are, I know personally engineers, um, threat hunters, forensic folks, that don't have a college degree, they make a fantastic income, and they're just as effective as my employees that do have the bachelor's degree. So I don't want to dumb down someone who has educational pursuits, right? I think it's great for someone to go and obtain their bachelor's or master's or doctorate for that matter. I don't want to say that, I don't want to come across as anti, um, but I'm just saying for some of these roles that we're having such a hard time filling, um, if we can work with our HR departments to undo that, you know, academic requirement, we would have the talent we need to do these very important roles that aren't getting done. I myself have a master's degree, so I'm also arguing that or I believe that when you go to attain such a degree, you're doing it for the knowledge, the passion, the education mm -hmm. of what that degree stands for versus in a vocation, you're 
working towards accomplishing a thing or doing a thing. And uh, that kind of walks into my next question. Do, do you think that an apprenticeship-based approach would allow us to create a potential funnel of more candidates if companies were more open to that model where they'd be able to test and work with the candidates over a period of time while they're still getting maybe a certification training or other technical training and still work with the company. That way they could funnel in potentially more great talent. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a fantastic way to start that whole mentoring and grooming process we talked about a little while ago. Um, I know many ISDs, I've had an opportunity to speak with a few of them since I've been in this current role. And I know that many of them have internships and that is incredibly helpful for both. It's a win-win situation. The um, person who's in the internship has an opportunity to work with people and understand real world what that particular job is like on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so it really helps them to hone in on what they want to be when they grow up. And at the same time, for hiring managers, um, we, we get to see, well, first we get to help develop, so we're giving back. And then secondly, you know, they're going to graduate at some point. Um, and if there's someone who rolls off our team or we go through the budget process and we're allowed to have a net new person in a specific discipline, guess what? We've already got a ready person right here that knows our environment now, that understands our business processes, that understands our technology and can jump right in there and start adding value. So yes, sir, Chris, I wholeheartedly support that model. And just a, a, um, a slight change, uh, tweak there. The, the internship process tends to be focused on individuals coming out of an educational facility, whereas an apprenticeship model like the DoD SkillBridge um, and other apprenticeship models, they're paid work models like, say, in the electrical industry, where you're working towards becoming a journeyman. And you 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 have to accomplish a set number of work hours, a set number of training hours to reach a certain level. Um, that, that's what I was referring to, but internships are, are great as well. I mean, I, I totally see the value there. Yeah, I think I, that's, a good, that's a great call out. And I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, you talked about, you know, training at the collegiate level. Well, they they could also have lesser programs that fit right into this narrative that you just shared with us, Chris, to help us hiring managers know, yes, he or she doesn't have an associate's or a bachelor's just yet, but they've got 160 of validated, concentrated hours in this specific skill set. And we know these things they're capable of doing. That's less work that I have to do. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) One last question. I know you're limited on time, and I truly appreciate it. Uh, From our audience member, uh, Janani, 
Gianni, uh, sorry about that. What's the best way to set yourself up for a pen testing career? I'm transitioning from computer engineering into cybersecurity. And I would ask that from the CISO perspective, how should yeah. he best prepare his career? So this is, this is probably um, among one of the um, most sought after careers that I always have people asking me about. And um, what, what I have seen work tremendously well for pen testers is um, the, uh, what's the name of those folks? Uh, EC Council. EC Council has an ethical hacker uh, certification. Um, it's not very easy, it, but it's not very hard. It's right in the middle. And I've seen an awful lot of folks make a transition uh, from other career fields, specifically into pen testing with that certification alone and get picked up um, ASAP. So if I were to make a recommendation, it would be to secure that EC Council ethical hacker. I think we're at version 11 now, Chris. Yeah, it could be. Um, I, I personally um, I have some disagreements with EC Council, but I'll, I'll kind of just let that be uh, because people have worked hard for those those certifications. And while the the body behind it um, had some eth ethical concerns uh, with some of their work, I think they've come out to correct it and hopefully we'll, we'll see if they improve in the future. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, one last question for you, Mike. Yes, sir. If you had to summarize all your recommendations uh, for someone looking at it, someone in the future listening to this, uh, what piece of advice would you give them coming into this career? Um, I would I would share with them to to network with people who are already doing the work to gain an appreciation for what that role entails um, and then sit with individuals like that to get various perspectives to see if that's something that they truly wanna do. Um, I think they should have the ability to be a team player and at the same time, an individual contributor. So what I mean by that is they can receive instructions. They can execute on what they've been asked to do. Engage the manager when they need to. Follow through without being asked to close out a specific inquiry task, incident, whatever the case may be. They'll have to most certainly have good presentation skills. Um, and they'll have to be an effective communicator. And then the other thing I would say is... Um, if, if they're transitioning over and they haven't had any technical um, training or any technical training experience, I would encourage them to, um, you know, do a boot camp, do some sort of extended um, um, educational program that'll give them that foundation where they can do some lab work and get their hands sort of dirty. Um, before they get to the actual job. I think if they're able to do all of those things, they can have a very, very promising career in cybersecurity. Well, Mike, thank you very much. For everyone following us here on LinkedIn, follow myself, follow Mike, follow the podcast.
Share this episode with all friends and family. For those of you following us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification button. That way we'll pop up next time. And then for those of you following us after the fact on podcasts, give us a 10-star review. If you can only give five, we'll settle for that. And then share it with all your friends and family. And thank you very much for joining us today. Join us tomorrow on um, Breaking into Cybersecurity, where we'll share another individual who's broken into the industry and done that. Um, Mike's details should be in our LinkedIn post. If not, I'll share it here in the comments uh, for you to follow him on LinkedIn. And for everyone, thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks, Chris. In the rapidly evolving world of cybersecurity, your business needs a guide that's as dynamic as the threats you face. CPF Coaching LLC delivers unparalleled expertise to elevate your cybersecurity startup or business with a decade and a half of specialized experience. We're not just advisors. We're your strategic partners in growth and risk mitigation. Our tailored advisory services range from immediate hourly guidance to comprehensive three or six month packages, all supported with encrypted messaging for real-time assistance. For more information, cpfcoaching.com is your destination. Forge a path to success and distinction in the cybersecurity landscape. Connect with CPF Coaching LLC today and secure your business's future.